Welcome to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me in the second segment of today's program is returning guest, Mr. John Rabino. John is a prolific author, a prolific blogger, and maintains a terrific website that we'll talk to him about that offers a great alternative perspective on all things economic and financial. We're going to chat with John about cryptocurrencies. We're going to chat with him about a crack-up boom, which is his prediction. We'll talk about what that is and what it might mean for you. And we're also going to chat with him about private sector debt, particularly student loan debt, and what that might mean for the economy. However, in this first segment, I want to talk to you a bit about a looming problem that it seems all the aspiring presidential political candidates are ignoring. Now, this political season is definitely in high gear. I think that there are approaching several dozen candidates on the Democratic side that want to take on President Trump, and I believe there is a Republican challenger or two uh, waiting in the wings as well. So the political season is once again in high gear, and yet no candidates, at least no candidates that I have heard of or seen, are talking about the obvious, ominous, approaching problem. Now, what is this obvious, ominous, approaching problem? It is a debt crisis. Now, that may seem, if you're listening to this, like a strong way to describe where the U.S. government is as far as debt is concerned, but bear with me, because you don't need to be a Ph.D. in economics to know that when debt levels get too high to be paid, they won't be paid. And that is exactly the situation in which we find ourselves. Yet, despite the approaching inevitability of a debt crisis, this topic has been... I believe, completely ignored by not only politicians, but also mainstream media sources. Now, the reality is the numbers don't lie. A recent article published by the Foundation for Economic Education, which is another terrific resource. If you want to check it out, the website is fee.org. This article quoted Zero Hedge and describes this inescapable eventuality of a debt crisis. And the article's pretty bold because it also included timelines, which is why I wanted to bring it to your attention today. Now, this article is extremely unsettling, to say the least. Now, according to the U.S. Treasury's Office of Debt Management, and yes, the U.S. Treasury has an office of debt management. Now, for those of you that are advocates of smaller government, I would throw out the idea that we really don't need an office of debt management at the U.S. Treasury because they're obviously not doing their job. The U.S. government, according to this office of debt management, is just five years away from having every dollar borrowed from the public consumed by interest on the debt. Now, once you get to this point, which, again, the U.S. Treasury's Office of Debt Management says is five years away, 
Once that happens, the United States will have entered what the article calls a debt-death spiral. Now, that's a strong term to use to describe this approaching point in time, but consider this. A Ponzi scheme is a structure that uses borrowed money from new investors to pay off earlier investors. Based on the estimates of the U.S. Treasury itself, in just five years, U.S. government debt becomes a full-fledged Ponzi scheme. Municipalities in the United States that have reached a similar crisis point have gone through bankruptcy proceedings or imposed significant spending cuts in order to restore fiscal health. Now, there's lots of examples of this, but one of the more recent ones is the city of Detroit. Now, let me put this problem into perspective. The current level of U.S. debt is $22.3 trillion and some change. Now, that does not include underfunded liabilities of programs like Social Security or Medicare. When underfunded liabilities are added to the national debt number, the fiscal gap of the United States is $200 trillion, more than $200 trillion, actually. That's the amount of money that we would have to have in hand today to pay off the debt and meet all the obligations of the U.S. government. Now, according to Fortune magazine, there are about 140 million U.S. taxpayers. So if we do a little bit of back-of-the-napkin math and take $200 trillion and divide it by 140 million, the total liability per U.S. taxpayer exceeds about $1.5 million. Now, according to Market Watch, the median net worth of an American household is $97,000. Liability per taxpayer, $1.5 million. Median net worth per taxpayer, $97,000. Simple math tells us this is going to be a big problem that emerges soon. Now, there are, there are only three possible policy responses to this, what I will call, a perilous predicament. One, default on the debt. In essence, the United States tells her creditors to go pound sand. You're not going to get paid. Now, I don't think there is a chance of that occurring. Now, the second thing that could happen is that the U.S. government could decide to cut spending. Now, the time has likely passed for this practical preferred solution. Once all the money borrowed goes to pay interest on the debt, it's too late to cut spending. Now, past guest here on the program, Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff, did an analysis, and he said that as of a year and a half ago, you would have to have a 47% permanent spending cut across the board to balance the budget. And that wouldn't even begin to pay off debt. So if you're collecting Social Security, you're going to get a cut of about half. Defense spending gets cut in about half. Is that going to happen? Certainly doesn't seem like it will. The third thing that could happen is money could be created. That has happened since the financial crisis. In fact, as recently as 10 years ago, if a politician suggested creating currency out of thin air as a viable solution for dealing with debt excesses, the politician would have been laughed out of politics, and yet, in the current political cycle, there are, a po there are politicians actually getting traction 
who have economic advisors who are proposing this currency printing as a reasonable alternative to this problem. Now, this will have to end. The late economist Herbert Stein said something profound. He said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop, and this will also. The question is, will you be ready? And to help you get ready, I'd like to offer you the New Retirement Rules book. You can go to the website, newretirementrulesbook.com, and I'll be glad to send you a copy free, newretirementrulesbook.com. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The New Retirement Rules book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. Just visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to get your free copy. www.newretirementrulesbook.com I'm pleased to have back on RLA Radio today Mr. John Rabino. Uh, John, if you have been a regular listener uh, to the program, John was on the program the uh, first part of the year in January and wanted to have him back to get an update on his thinking. Uh, John has the website dollarcollapse.com. I would encourage you to check that out. John is also a prolific author. And uh, John, welcome back to the program. Hey, Dennis. Thanks for having me back. Well, let's jump in, John, because uh, you wrote a piece recently about how the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, as well as the Federal Reserve, all seem to be reversing course. It wasn't, but maybe six months ago, we were going to normalize interest rates, whatever that means. Uh, I guess I would say five or six percent. And now all of a sudden, they're reversing course saying, you know, I don't think we're going to do that. We're going to be a little bit more dovish. How do you read that? Well, this is a, actually a very big story, maybe the biggest financial story that's out there right now. Uh, 
Over the past few years, central banks started making noises about tightening, which they, they really needed to do to raise interest rates to give them some ammunition to cut interest rates in the next recession. Um, only the U.S. Fed actually raised interest rates, but the other big central banks were talking about doing it. And then uh, the, the global stock markets um, had a, a you know mini meltdown towards the end of the year in 2018, and um, everybody pulled back. The, the Fed said, okay, that's enough interest rate in increases for this cycle. And the other central banks said, you know, we're not even going to start raising interest rates. So we found out that interest rates can never go any higher than they are and will have to be cut dramatically nevertheless in the next recession. And that's a huge deal because um, in past recessions, we started with interest rates of three, four, five, six percent, and central banks were able to cut rates towards zero and uh, revitalize the economy in that way. In other words, get people borrowing at low rates. But now we're starting from zero in a lot of countries and still very low in the U.S. Uh, so when the next recession hits, or the next crisis of any kind, where they, they feel like they need to use monetary policy to combat it, we're heading for negative interest rates all over the world. And that's that's already starting to happen in Europe, where the, um, the, the value of bonds trading at negative interest rates doubled in the last year. Um, and Japan, there's already a lot of negative interest rate bonds. So we're going to see a world in the next recession that is completely unprecedented, where everybody has negative interest rates, which means if you want to put money in the bank, you have to pay the bank to store your money. Or if you want to lend money to a government, in other words, buy government bonds, you have to pay them for the privilege of lending money to them. And nobody knows what this means or what, what's going to happen when the world starts operating that way. So we're we are already in uncharted financial and economic territory heading into this, but we're going even more deeply into uncharted territory when the next recession hits. And, uh, you know, I can't stress this en enough. Nobody knows what will happen when interest rates are normally negative around the world, where that's just the environment that we live in, you know? Will we just stop wanting to hold cash in the bank because we have to pay for it? Will we um, just dump these currencies because it's clear that they're being inflated away so aggressively? And then will we pile into real assets? That's one scenario that is, you know, the, the gold bug's dream when, when everybody gives up on the big currencies of the world and decides to own real stuff that governments can't make more of and one of or two of which are gold and silver. So that could very easily happen, but that's the least of what could happen. <laughs> if we have global negative interest rates, all kinds of crazy things could, uh, could turn out to be what you get when you do that. But we just don't know because we've never tried it before. Well, John, as you're talking and you, and as we, you know, we have a significant amount of, as you said, uh, debt around the world uh, earning negative interest rates. If you if you can earn a negative interest rate, I guess I should think about that. But the, I guess as we move more toward that, it, it, one seems like it's crazy, and it seems like it's a condition that just can't exist long term uh, because demand will dry up, and it seems like you'd have to see. You know, a rise in the sale of home safes. Uh, I'll just keep my cash in a home safe. Uh, I want to pile into, as you said, gold, silver, platinum, palladium, and, and other assets. Um, 
do, do you see any correlation between some of the, the, the talk that I haven't heard anything serious, but talk about moving to more of a cashless type society? Is, is, do those two things go hand in hand? Well, yeah, that's one of the things governments will have to do to make negative interest rates for an extended period of time possible, because we would just pull our money out of the bank logically, right? If the bank is costing us 2% a year to hold our the cash that's in our savings account or our checking account, um, it makes sense to pull that out and, as you said, put it in a home safe or something like that, or just shift out of <laughs> these fiat currencies altogether and buy gold and silver and farmland and oil wells and other real stuff. And that defeats the purpose of negative interest rates. So it kind of short circuits the financial system. So to uh, to deal with that, there are a lot of you know legitimate economists now calling for the elimination of cash or the uh, the change in terms with which um, cash operates in the world. For instance, some of them are saying that okay, cash will be made to depreciate. In other words, if you take a bunch of $20 bills home, um, the rate at which they can be converted into other things goes down by some mechanism. In other words, they have an expiration date now, existing cash. Or they just um, won't let you use cash in stores. You know, they, they a lot of stores would like to go cashless because it's way more convenient if everybody uses plastic. So um, they would encourage the private sector to just stop accepting cash. So in that way, they make it really inconvenient to use cash. And they're hoping that we would just stop doing it. And we would accept the other inconvenience of negative interest rates, because it's less of a problem than what happens when you hold cash. Uh, Now, that might sound like not that big of a deal. But we have to remember that cash is pretty much the last vestige of financial privacy in the world. Right now, they can track everything else we do. You know, if you uh, do something with a credit card, it shows up in a database. If you do something with your bank account, the NSA and, and the SEC are all tracking you. And and um, they, they know what you're doing. They know where you're doing it at all times. And m- most of the time, that's not that big of a deal. But there are times in life and in the, in the life cycle of a country when you really don't want the government to necessarily know every step that you take and everything you spend. And, and cash is the last thing that allows us to transact privately. So when that is gone, um, that leads to a lot of political issues that we, we may not be thinking of now, but we won't like when they happen because uh, to be tracked everywhere all the time by your government is a really uncomfortable thing, even when the government is benign. But as soon as the government starts becoming authoritarian, it becomes terrifying, right? That you you literally have Big Brother, um, who knows where you are at all times and what you're doing at all times. So cash, the elimination of cash is kind of a step in that process, along with all the other stuff that governments are doing now. You know, the surveillance state um, is a terrifying concept, but it's becoming reality. They, they really can follow us around and know what we're doing all the time um, in most cases. So seen that way, the elimination of cash serves two goals. One is to allow governments to further mismanage the financial system. And the other is to allow governments to track you <laughs> nonstop 24-7. And then 
once your all your money is electronic and it exists in accounts, they can hack those accounts and empty them in theory if they want to. So if you're someone who's opposing some government policy, um, a cashless world makes you extremely vulnerable to the government. They can just literally empty your bank account or literally turn off your credit cards if uh, if you do something to make them mad. And there's really no recourse, right? Because normally the government is the recourse. You call the cops if something like that happens, and the FBI comes in and investigates who's hacking these bank accounts. Well, if it's the government doing the hacking, um, then you're at their mercy. So anyhow, uh, there are a lot of different moving parts and different angles to consider with where we're headed in the next iteration of the um, the global boom-bust financial system that we've got now. And in a lot of ways, it's a very, very scary prospect. And John, as you're talking, I'm thinking about this, and it just seems to me that should that situation someday become reality, it's going to create a huge black market for silver coins. Uh, wouldn't you think that a lot of commerce would be done uh, you know, off the record, so to speak? Oh, yeah. See, the more restrictive and authoritarian a government gets, the more people it turns into criminals. Because we have to live, you know, and if we can't live under the rules that they're creating, we still have to we have to do things that are illegal, that shouldn't be illegal, but they're illegal under the arbitrary rules of an authoritarian government. And yes, we're headed for that. Uh, and, and it's not unprecedented that they would make gold illegal to own, because that already happened. For the biggest part of the 20th century, gold was illegal in the U.S. FDR made it illegal for individuals to hold it in, um, I think it was 1934, and didn't we didn't remove that restriction until 1971. So it's completely possible that the the, the stage after the elimination elimination of cash is the restriction um, of the use of other kinds of money. In other words, we we will won't be able to use gold and silver for transacting because the government will make that illegal too. Uh, and so it's kind of a cat and mouse game. And black, ma- black markets normally win. You know, it's impossible to stop people from trading. Um, they always find a way. But governments traditionally try to make it hard. And they, they, they really raise the cost of transacting in ways that they disapprove of. So that's kind of the cat and mouse game we have coming, where uh, if this continues along its present course, uh, the financial markets will get crazier and crazier. Governments will respond to that with crazier and crazier policies. And again, that's not historically unprecedented. If you go back and look through um, the, the many, many, many hyperinflations that have happened in the past, where where Countries borrow too much money, and then in order to manage their debts, they make the currency worth less and less so they can pay their debts back in in depreciated currency. That causes people to behave in ways that short-circuits the government's policy, then the government makes that illegal. Uh, For instance, price controls have happened over and over again. And uh, during the days of the Roman Empire um, and post-revolutionary France, there was a death penalty attached to breaking price control rules. Uh, And... You know, in the U.S., we've had more benign price controls, but nevertheless, price controls. And around the world, other countries have done the same thing. So, we, you know, we'll see stuff like price controls and capital controls where you're not allowed to take your money out of the country. All of this stuff is historically normal when countries screw up their finances. Uh, the, the thing that's new this time around is that it's global. It used to be one country would do it at a time. One country would have a hyperinflation in a 
generally sound currency world. In other words, everybody else would have gold <laughs> as their money, and so it didn't really affect them when you know Germany had a hyperinflation or Venezuela did it or whatever. Uh, now everybody's making the same mistakes. All the big countries are uh, taking on absolutely insane amounts of debt, and they're cutting interest rates to levels that are debil debilitating for some parts of the private sector. Um, and will have to lower the value of their currencies going forward at an accelerating rate. So the question is, what happens when people figure that out and don't want to hold the currency anymore? In uh, the Austrian School of Economics, there's a thing called the crack-up boom, which is the point at which a critical mass of people um, decide that because the currency is falling in value so quickly, they don't want to hold it anymore, and they just bail. And then so you get a collapse of the currency, which manifests as spiking prices in the stuff that people buy with that currency to get out of the currency. Um, so it's not an oversupply that causes the currency to die. It's a lack of faith in the people managing the currency. Uh, and as I said in the past, that usually um, has occurred one country at a time. Now we get the whole world <laughs> heading in that same direction. So that's another piece of uncharted territory. We don't know what that means, You know how different it will be when five big countries or, or the entire EU and Japan and the U.S. have this problem at the same time, because uh, we've never tried to do anything like that before. We've never seen it happen. But I, I think you can say with some certainty that it'll be chaotic. That will be one seriously crazy decade when it happens. And uh, the intellectual challenge for regular people like us is to try to figure out how to navigate that, how to, how to set up our financial lives and the rest of our lives. Um, so that we're as resilient as possible when the old systems that we used to count on don't work anymore and there's no real replacement in sight for a while. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today is Mr. John Rabino. I will be back with John after these words. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. 
The new retirement rules book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. Just visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to get your free copy. www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure today of chatting once again with uh, John Rabino. Uh, John has the website dollarcollapse.com. The website, again, dollarcollapse.com. I would encourage you to check it out. John is also a prolific author. Uh, John, uh, let me go back to maybe what we started with here and take a little bit different angle. Uh, if our listeners are just joining us, we talked about the fact that you recently wrote a piece about how all these central banks around the world are now going back into a mode of uh, at least keeping interest rates lower, perhaps maybe even going back to quantitative easing or, or money printing again. What does that tell us about the state of the world economy if the economy can't handle you know, interest rates at 4 or 5%? Yeah, well, when you borrow a lot of money, the interest rate becomes a very important thing, right? And all around the world, all the major countries, at every level of their societies, they've borrowed too much money, which means when interest rates go up, that raises costs for huge sections of those societies. For instance, uh, Japan, the Japanese government has borrowed so much money that if their average interest cost just went up to what the U.S. government's cost is, in other words, AAA credit, U.S. treasuries, um, Japan would have to pay more in interest than it takes in in tax revenues. In other words, the government would go bankrupt. And that's true in different ways at, at various levels for pretty much every part of every other society um, in the world right now. You know, in, in the U.S., if mortgage rates went up, the housing sector would collapse. If corporate debt interest rates went up, then all these over-leveraged companies out there would start to fall apart. It just goes on and on everywhere. So the more debt we take on, the lower interest rates have to stay basically forever to keep huge sections of major societies from just collapsing. And in each cycle of the past three, we've had to push interest rates down further and further during recessions in order to stop the recession from turning into a 1930s-style Great Depression. And now we're at or below zero interest rates in a lot of the world. And the U.S. isn't all that far from it. So in the next recession, normally central banks, um, well, normally the Fed, our central bank, cuts interest rates about five percentage points during a recession. So assuming we have to do that again, then we're talking you know, negative two and a half percent interest rates or whatever in the U.S. and negative four or five percent interest rates in a lot of other countries. And that's that's as crazy as it sounds, <laughs> and that, yet it still might happen. You know, uh, we're, we're entering another political cycle here, um, and a lot of uh, a lot of Republicans and and, and Trump supporters are uh, touting, obviously, the improved economy or what seems to be an improved economy. Uh, what's your take on you know the probability for a recession between now and the election? Well, you can generate economic growth by giving people money and having them spend it. 
one way or another. Either you, you make interest rates low and you encourage them to borrow, or you cut their taxes, or you spend a huge amount of money with, that you borrow at the governmental level, and that is given to people and they spend it. So you can generate growth, which is what we did um, so far in the first two years of the, the Trump administration. But it's a temporary thing if it's debt generated, right? Because you have to pay that debt off eventually, and that slows down growth because you're not spending money on productive stuff. You're just paying interest. So that's what we did. We uh, we borrowed a huge amount of new money in the U.S., and we spent it this time around on tax cuts and higher military spending, and that's giving us a little pop in the economy. Um, that can't go on forever. And the more money you borrow in order to keep getting these little temporary pops, the more money you have to borrow going forward to get the next one. So it's not clear whether the um, the growth that we have now will continue into the election, which is what sitting governments always want, right? They want to goose the economy so that it's roaring on election day. And they don't care so much what happens after election day because then they've got plenty of time in which to work stuff out, but they got elected, they got reelected. Um, and this is no exception to that. We're seeing aggressive growth strategies be implemented heading into a presidential election. And, and we're also seeing the president publicly tell the Fed to cut interest rates. <laughs> and, yet, and, and that's really unprecedented, too. Yeah, I mean, presidents lobby the Fed all the time to get lower interest rates because they always want lower interest rates. But they usually do it privately. Uh, but, of course, Trump, you know, it's his nature to do private stuff in public. So this is just one more example of... of um, how government operates differently under Donald Trump. He's out there telling the Fed what to do. And uh, one of the um, the defining traits of the Federal Reserve has always supposed to have been independence, right? It's not part of the government. <laughs> and the government can't tell it what to do, in theory. Um, this time around, we've got the government trying hard to tell the Fed what to do and, uh, and asking for lower interest rates. And between the stock market flaking out towards the end of 2018, and the president leaning hard on the Fed, um, you're getting some results. Um, the stock market scared the Fed, so they, they stopped raising interest rates. The president is basically ordering them to cut interest rates, and they, they haven't done that yet, but they're leaving the door open. So if the, the stock market gets a little flaky, oh, there's also a theory <laughs> that's in headlines right now that Trump um, is um, he's exacerbating the U.S.-China trade war with all the threats that he's made lately about walking away from the table and raising tariffs on China as a way to tank the stock market to force the Fed to cut interest rates. So the, the theory is that uh, stock markets tank because of this trade war. The, the Fed responds to that with lower interest rates. Then Trump signs a trade deal with China and takes that off the table, the stock market goes up, but interest rates are still low heading into the election. So you get the best of all possible worlds if it's timed right. And that, that is a serious piece of political machination, if it's true. Um, but the pieces do fit together. And election years tend to have pretty aggressive easing of one kind or another. So it, it wouldn't be a surprise if all of that stuff happened. But it's uh, it's it's an interesting piece of political theater. <laughs> it's fun to watch if that's actually what's being tried. 
You know, as as you're talking about this, John, one of the things that popped into my mind was that we have significant private sector debt levels, student loan debt, credit card debt, automobile debt, mortgage debt. Um, that obviously is going to be a huge weight on the economy as it was back uh, at the time of the financial crisis, and that led to, uh, among derivative exposure, uh, a number of banking failures. So what's your take on whether or not we see a repeat on some level of what we saw uh, in the banking sector a little more than a decade ago? Well, the the thing that caused the last bubble very seldom causes the next bubble. And the the banks, bank analysts at least, uh, say that the banks are a lot better capitalized than they were last time around. Um, At the same time, you mentioned a lot of other sectors where a huge amount of debt has been taken on. And so so they look more likely to be the... um, the catalysts for the next crisis. For instance, student loans have gone from um, a few hundred billion to $1.6 trillion in just the last decade. And that is a huge weight, like you said, on college graduates and people who aren't even college graduates who just took a couple of years of school and now owe $40,000 that they can't pay off. Um, They can't buy houses, obviously, and they can't buy cars. Um, And then in, in the auto sector, Subprime auto loans was a big thing for the last couple of years where car companies and, and their their affiliated banks were lending money to people who were bad credits so they could buy um, brand new cars for seven-year terms, you know, and th- that is a huge weight on the economy and, and could lead to a lot of defaults, which starts knocking down other sectors. So a lot of stuff could go wrong. Um, it doesn't look like the big banks are teetering on the edge the way um, – you know, credit card borrowers and car loan borrowers and student loans that are, they are right now. Um, But derivatives are always a time bomb out there. Um, The problem with them is we don't know who has what. You know, derivatives are, are, it's a shadowy market that's not regulated very well. So banks basically used it as a casino where they, um, they make these big, huge bets and then shovel some of the risk off to um, hedge funds or whatever and collect fees along the way. And so they make money in the moment. But in the process, they create immense amounts of risk. Um, the the over-the-counter derivatives market right now, the, the notional value of all those contracts out there is approaching a quadrillion dollars. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a number that's incomprehensible. And the banks say, well, we're, we're – um, we're covered because our net risk, in other words, the difference between where we're long over here and where we're short over there is minuscule. It's just a tiny little fraction of the notional value of derivatives out there. But of course, that's only true as long as everybody on every side of these bets can pay off when the time comes. But if some of them can't pay off, then net exposure I'm, I'm sorry, gross exposure becomes net exposure. In other words, the uh, the notional value of all these things becomes real, and somebody's got to pay them off somehow. And that's what happened in um, 2009 when the derivatives market blew up. If if we didn't bail out some of the big players in derivatives with trillions of dollars of loan guarantees and, and direct cash, um, Goldman Sachs would be gone right now, and J.P. Morgan Chase would have evaporated, Citigroup would be gone. Literally, the uh, the big banks would have disappeared in the space of just a few weeks. And their derivatives books didn't shrink. They didn't learn that lesson from their near-death experience. Their derivatives books are still as big as they were back then, 
which means that's out there as a risk. But it's it's a harder risk for anybody else to understand because they don't have to report what is where. All they have to report is their, their net exposure, uh, which is a completely meaningless number in a financial crisis. So we don't know what hedge fund out there is, uh, you know, a trillion dollars short um, interest rates or which hedge fund is, is um, you know, long gold or whatever. We just don't know that. So we don't know what fluctuations in those markets mean for the net amount of risk in the system. But it's a safe bet that any kind of volatility raises the level of risk in the derivatives market. So next time stocks tank, next time interest rates get volatile, next time anything like that happens, um, we will see a lot of explosions in the financial market <clears throat> where um, hedge funds we've never heard of blow up. And it turns out their exposure was immense. And now what are we going to do about this? You know, that, that kind of thing is guaranteed in the next recession. The only question is, uh, can they contain it, or does it become systemically risky? In other words, will it take down the whole show if they don't act aggressively to fix it? And then when they act aggressively, what does that mean for the currency markets if yet another multi-trillion dollar bailout happens and people lose faith in the dollar because they know that that's going to require so much new currency to be dumped into the market? So you get all these knock-on effects from whatever crisis happens next that – that we've never really seen before. And um, we don't know whether they're going to happen sequentially or all at once when, when the dominoes start falling, how it'll happen. And we don't know what we'll do about it. We just don't know any of this. So we, as an individual with some money at risk in the world, you should be really worried <laughs> about um, discontinuities, you know, where the uh, the banking system just shuts down for a while and you can't get your money out of your bank or the stockbrokers start to uh, fail, and your your stocks kind of disappear. You have no idea how to get get them because you used to look them up on your stockbroker's web website, and it's not there anymore. That's the kind of stuff that uh, that we should be afraid of, and that we should be preparing for. Well, our guest today has been Mr. John Rabino, and unfortunately, the clock says, John, we need to leave it there. Uh, John's website is dollarcollapse.com. I would encourage you to check it out. And uh, John, thanks for coming back on the program. Uh, appreciate your time very much. Thanks, Dennis. Enjoyed it. We will be back after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. 
I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. Visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to request your free copy. The New Retirement Rules book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. Just visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to get your free copy. www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com I am Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. Welcome back. You know, in this segment, I want to, as I often do, take a walk back in history. I am a firm believer that your history teacher was right. Those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. And that's true of economic and financial cycles as well. Now, exactly 89 years ago, Herbert Hoover, who was president at the time, June of 1930, signed the Smoot-Hawley Act into law. Now, for those of you who are not history buffs, Smoot-Hawley increased tariffs on 900 imported goods anywhere from 40 to 48%. Now, there were a lot of goods that were affected by the new tariffs, but imported agricultural goods were especially targeted. Now, there were already high tariffs on agricultural imports, but the Smoot-Hawley Act raised them even more, and the rationale behind the law was to protect American farmers who were already suffering. Now, as you know, if you've been even keeping one eye on the news today, when tariffs are increased, it's never one-sided. Instead, it's always tit-for-tat. And that's what happened after Smoot-Hawley was passed in 1930s. Other countries retaliated. They increased tariffs on goods that were imported from the United States. Now, back in 1930, there were a lot of folks who opposed the Smoot-Hawley Act. In fact, while the bill sat on President Hoover's desk waiting for him to sign it, the president received a letter signed by 1,028 economists who said, don't sign it. It's a bad idea. Now, here are just a couple of excerpts from that 1930 letter. And again, these are economists writing to President Hoover. We are convinced that increased protective duties would be a mistake. They would operate in general to increase the prices which domestic consumers would have to pay. A higher level of protection such as is contemplated by both the House and Senate bills, would therefore raise the cost of living and injure the great majority of our citizens. Our export trade, in general, would suffer. Countries cannot permanently buy from us unless they are permitted to sell to us. And the more we restrict the importation of goods from them by means of ever higher tariffs, 
the more we reduce the possibility of our exporting to them. And there are already many evidences that such action would inevitably provoke other countries to pay us back in kind by levying retaliatory duties, excuse me, retaliatory duties against our goods. Now, Henry Ford also, along with these thousand-plus economists, opposed the Smoot-Hawley Act. In fact, before President Hoover signed the bill, Mr. Ford spent an evening at the White House trying to convince the president not to sign the bill. Now, these arguments worked to a point. Hoover himself, before signing the bill, concluded that it might be a bad idea. Now, at least partially because of the Smoot-Hawley Act, world trade declined 65%. Now, economists who study history have different opinions on what role the Smoot-Hawley Act played in the Great Depression, but there certainly is consensus that it at least, at the very least, exacerbated the economic downturn. Now fast forward to where we are today. There's new evidence that the trade war in which we now find ourselves is affecting world trade. Bloomberg reported last week that, and I'm quoting, the escalating U.S.-China trade war is threatening to upend the global economy's much-anticipated rebound and could even throw its decade-long expansion into doubt if the conflict spirals out of control. Now, there's already some emerging evidence that global trade has already begun to decline. The International Monetary Fund's Direction of Trade Statistics reported that exports to the world are at the lowest point since 2009, exports to advanced economies are lowest since 2009, and exports to the European Union are also the lowest that they've been since 2009. That's going back 10 years. The industrial production numbers, not surprisingly, mirror the global trade numbers. For example, production of motor vehicles and parts fell the most in three months. Machinery output declined the most since 2014. Business equipment dropped more than any time since 2013. And consumer goods fell the most since January. Now, private sector debt levels, as I just discussed with John Rubino, have also once again, once again rather, risen to levels that are, in our view, unsustainable, as they did in 1930. So what does this mean for you? Well, we believe that there will be tremendous political pressure on the Federal Reserve moving ahead based on these emerging statistics to begin easing again. That will mean perhaps lower interest rates and perhaps even more quantitative easing or money printing. So it's probably a good time to at least consider locking in interest rates on time deposits And it's also a good time to think about accumulating tangible assets, particularly gold and silver. Now, if you'd like to learn more about how where we are today fits into these historical economic cycles, I'm making an offer for you to get the New Retirement Rules book today, absolutely free. Just visit the website, newretirementrulesbook.com. Let us know where to mail the book, and we'll be glad to send it to you. NewRetirementRulesBook.com is the website. That's the program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.